0: Hello, fellow saints, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. We are going over 3rd Nephi, chapters 8 through 11 today, but before we go too much farther, I misspoke in the last podcast and said that the Nephites were waiting for the major sign of three days of light, and it's really just a day and a night and a day. It wasn't three days of light. That sign comes later with three days of darkness, so I just wanted to clarify that. We start off in the 30th year and the people have broken into tribes with the government being completely destroyed. This, by the way, is also a sign for Christ's second coming. In addition, at his second coming, the church will give rise, it's described as a birth, to the kingdom of God, which is a government. In that way, the faithful will not be living in anarchy as the rest of the world. This is where we find the saints under Nephi as well. He was holding them together and baptizing and organizing the church and the kingdom. Chapter 8 starts off in the 33rd year. Okay, and this is the 33rd year since the sign of the coming of Christ upon the earth. And in verse 1, Mormon identifies Nephi as a prophet. He says, "And we know our record to be true for behold it was a just man who did keep the record, for he truly did many miracles in the name of Jesus, and there was not any man who could do a miracle in the name of Jesus." save he were cleansed every whit from his iniquity. So he was righteous and he was pure. Elder Holland says all priesthood bearers must be instruments in the hands of God. And to be so, you must, as Joshua said, sanctify yourselves. You must be ready and worthy to act. That's a call to all of you brethren out there who are priesthood holders as we enter into these final days. Verse three, it says, and the people began to look with great earnestness for the sign which had been given by the prophet Samuel, the Lamanite. yea, for the time that there should be darkness for the space of three days over the face of the land. It says in verse four, that even in the church, there's some conflict about these signs. They're beginning to forget. They're getting confused. There is contention, and that's the power of Satan, even within the church. In verse 5, it talks about how the 34th year, or three and a half years after the fall of the government, there comes a great storm. And this is the beginning of the terrible signs prophesied by Samuel. And there's three hours of tempest, thunder, lightning, earthquakes, and fire. Cities are destroyed. Zarahemla is burned to the ground. Moroni sinks into the sea. And we read of countless numbers of cities that are destroyed. The most wicked being destroyed the most. And what we need to understand from these verses is that God will hold the wicked accountable. Now, we may not know when and we may not know how, but the Lord will hold them accountable. In verse 17, it talks about how the whole face of the earth is changed. Now, let's compare that to our day today. And Elder Oaks in 2004 said, Signs of the second coming are all around us and seem to be increasing in frequency and intensity. For example, the list of major earthquakes in the World Almanac and Book of Facts 2004 shows twice as many earthquakes in the decades of the 1980s and 1990s as in the two preceding decades. It also shows further sharp increases in the first several years of this century. The list of notable floods and tidal waves and the lists of hurricanes, typhoons, and blizzards worldwide show similar increases in recent years. Increases by comparison with 50 years ago can be dismissed as changes in reporting criteria, but the accelerating pattern of natural disasters in the last few decades is ominous. And that was back in 2004. I think we can say that it's increased even since then. Verse 19, everything stops and there's darkness, complete and total darkness. Now at his birth, there was light and light is intelligence or truth and knowledge but it is death, there is darkness, which is a lack of light. Darkness only really exists when there is absolutely no light. So Christ has been killed. He's been hung on the cross. His spirit has left his body and they've entombed him. And symbolically speaking, because his light is not upon the face of the earth, the people on the American continent also have no light. And like we said earlier, this happens for three days and there's howling and mourning. And what do they do? They wish they had repented. Verse 23, it says, And it came to pass that it did last for the space of three days that there was no light seen, and there was great mourning and howling and weeping among all the people continually. Yea, great were the groanings of the people because of the darkness and the great destruction which had come upon them. Here's what N. Eldon Tanner said. He said, Today the world is rejecting the messages of the prophets of God. Is it not true that there is weeping and wailing over the face of the land because men are at war one with another? Do we not have among us many who lament the waywardness of their youth and the tragedies that befall them as they turn away from righteousness and suffer the consequences of tampering with alcohol, tobacco and drugs, and other forbidden things? How many mourners do we have as a result of the lawlessness that is extant in our communities? We need to heed the lessons from the history of the past, lest we be consumed, as were some of those earlier civilizations. This was the message Christ brought to those early Nephite people. In chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, they it says their voice explaining their destruction. Verse 13 explains that the ones who were spared were done so because they were more righteous. They weren't converted necessarily, or faithful, just not as wicked. And obviously there were some who were very righteous and faithful who listened to Nephi, but the majority still needed repentance. Which is why in verses 14 and 15, Christ's voice says, Yea, verily I say unto you, If ye will come unto me, ye shall have eternal life. Behold, mine arm of mercy is is extended towards you. And whosoever will come, him will I receive, and blessed are those who come unto me. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I created the heavens and the earth, and all things that in them are. I was with the Father from the beginning. I am in the Father, and the Father in me. And in me hath the Father glorified his name. The message is simple. Come unto me. This is what Elder Holland said. He said, come Christ says lovingly, come follow me wherever you're going. First, come and see what I do. See where and how I spend my time. Learn of me, walk with me, talk with me, believe, listen to me, pray. In turn, you will find answers to your own prayers. God will bring rest to your souls. Come follow me. What a beautiful, beautiful tribute to the Savior and to his very simple call to us. In verse 19, we learn that the law of sacrifice by the shedding of blood has been fulfilled. And in its place, he says in verse 20, and ye shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost even as the Lamanites, because of their faith in me at the time of their conversion, were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. I think it's very interesting that they knew it not. So conversion is definitely a process. Uh, I, I think most of us know when we were baptized and especially when we received the Holy Ghost. But at the same time, there is that process of coming unto Christ and getting to know him and being healed and converted on a regular basis. Elder Christopherson said, The Savior said he would no longer accept burnt offerings of animals. The gift of sacrifice he will accept now is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. You can offer the Lord the gift of your broken or repentant heart and your contrite or obedient spirit. In reality, it is the gift of yourself, what you are and what you are becoming. Is there something in you or in your life that is impure or unworthy? When you get rid of it, that is a gift to the Savior. Is there a good habit or quality that is lacking in your life? When you adopt it and make it part of your character, you are giving a gift to the Lord. President Nelson said after the Savior's ultimate sacrifice, two adjustments were made in the practice of the law of sacrifice. First, the ordinance of the sacrament replaced the ordinance of sacrifice. And second, this change moved the focus of the sacrifice from a person's animal to the person himself. In a sense, the sacrifice changed from the offering to the offerer. Instead of the Lord requiring our animals or grain, now he wants us to give up all that is ungodly. When we overcome our own selfish desires and put God first in our lives and covenant to serve him, regardless of the cost, we are living the law of sacrifice. Finally, Neil A. Maxwell said, real personal sacrifice never was placing an animal on the altar. Instead, it is a willingness to put the animal in us upon the altar and letting it be consumed. The only thing we can truly sacrifice is our own will. As you submit your wills to God, you are giving him the only thing you can actually give him that is really yours to give. Don't wait too long to find the altar or to begin to place the gift of your wills upon it. Essentially, Christ goes back to the basics. We're talking about the basic doctrine of his gospel of the good news. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Ghost. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says, And now, behold, it came to pass that all the people of the land did hear these sayings and did witness of it, And after these sayings, there was silence in the land for the space of many hours. And I I think that's interesting. Silence for a space of time reminds me of the book of Revelation where it says there's silence in the heavens for the space of half an hour. Just probably unrelated, but a curious bit of words. Verses 4 through 7, he goes back to how oft I would have gathered you. In, In other words, I said, come follow me, and you didn't do it. How oft I would have gathered you as a hen would gather her chicks. President Irene said more than once he has said that he would gather us to him as a hen would gather her chickens under her wings. He said that we must choose to come to him in meekness and with enough faith in him to repent with full purpose of heart. One way to do that is to gather with the saints in his church. Go to your meetings, even when it seems hard. If you are determined, he will help you find the strength to do it. Well, the people lament again until the three days are up. In verse 10, it says, And the earth did cleave together again, that it stood, and the mourning and the weeping and the wailing of the people who were spared alive did cease. And their mourning was turned into joy, and their lamentations into the praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord Jesus Christ, their Redeemer. So when the light returns their sorrow turns to joy and they praise the Lord, why is that significant? Here again, the light signifies that Christ has overcome the grave and that he was resurrected and that we can be resurrected and overcome our sin. It says in verse 12, And it was the more righteous part of the people who were saved, and it was they who received the prophets and stoned them not. And it was they who had not shed the blood of the saints who were spared. Elder Ballard said, It is no small thing, my brothers and sisters, to have a prophet of God in our midst. Great and wonderful are the blessings that come into our lives as we listen to the word of the Lord given to us through him. When we hear the counsel of the Lord expressed through the words of the president of the church, our response should be positive and prompt. History shows that there is safety, peace, prosperity, and happiness in responding to the prophetic counsel. Verse 14 is a challenge to us to study the prophecies and look for how they are fulfilled. It says, And now, whoso readeth, let him understand. He that hath the scriptures, let him search them, and see, and behold, if all these deaths and destructions by fire, and by smoke, and by tempests, and by whirlwinds, and by the opening of the earth to receive them, And all these things are not unto the fulfilling of the prophecies of many of the holy prophets. And I would make that same challenge to us today for his second coming. There are parallels regarding the coming of Christ the first time with the second time. We have evidence of this in the Book of Mormon, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in the Doctrine and Covenants. We see it in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, and in the Book of Mormon, in Ezra, in Daniel, in Revelation. You can read about it in the Apocrypha and in prophecies of modern prophets, both alive and dead, and we need to be aware of the signs so we are not unprepared, so that his coming is not like a thief in the night so that we can survive and be ready to meet him when we are called. And now we move into chapter 11, the crowning chapter of the Book of Mormon. And many people have gathered at the temple in Bountiful, and they are talking and rejoicing because of the signs. In verse 3 it says, And it came to pass that while they were thus conversing one with another, they heard a voice as if it came out of heaven, and they cast their eyes round about. For they understood not the voice which they heard, and it was not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear to the center, insomuch that there was no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake. Yea, it did pierce them to the very soul, and did cause their hearts to burn. I find it interesting that the first voice that they heard a, co- you know, a couple chapters back They understood, and they understood it as Christ's voice, and he was calling them to repentance. And now we have another voice speaking to them that pierces them to the very core, and they feel it. And we know it's the the Holy Ghost that's speaking to them, but they don't quite understand it yet. This is what Elder Packer had to say. He said, The voice of the Spirit is described in the Scriptures as being neither loud nor harsh. It is not a voice of thunder, neither voice of great tumultuous noise but rather a still voice of perfect mildness, as if it had been a whisper, and it can pierce even to the very soul and cause the heart to burn. Remember, Elijah found the voice of the Lord was not in the wind, nor in the earthquake, nor in the fire, but was a still, small voice. The Spirit does not get our attention by shouting or shaking us with a heavy hand. Rather, it whispers, it caresses so gently that if we are preoccupied, we may not feel it at all. No wonder that the word of wisdom was revealed to us, for how could the drunkard or the addict feel such a voice? Occasionally, it will press just firmly enough for us to pay heed, but most of the time, if we do not heed the gentle feeling, the spirit will withdraw. They hear this voice a second time and don't understand, and then it says the third time they understand. A lot of symbolism in threes in these last few chapters as well. In verses 8 through 11, Christ is announced and appears to the people of the American continent. And bear with me while I read these, because I think it's important. And this is, like I said, the crowning chapter of the Book of Mormon. And these are the crowning verses. And it came to pass, as they understood, they cast their eyes up again towards heaven. And behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe. And he came down and stood in the midst of them. And the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him, and they durst not open their mouths, even one to another, and wist not what it meant, for they thought it was an angel that had appeared unto them. And it came to pass that he stretched forth his hand, and spake unto the people, saying, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And behold, I am the light and the life of the world. I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. What a remarkable experience it was for these people to witness the coming of the Savior of Jesus Christ. President Benson said, How few people in all the history of the world have heard the actual voice of God the Father speaking to them. As the people looked heavenward, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe, and he came down and stood in the midst of them. A glorious resurrected being, a member of the Godhead, the creator of innumerable worlds, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, stood before their eyes. In verse 11, Christ talks about the bitter cup that he was called to drink. This is what James E. Faust had to say, he said, many members in drinking of the bitter cup that has come to them wrongfully think that this cup passes by others. In his first words to the people of the Western continent, Jesus of Nazareth poignantly spoke of the bitter cup the father had given him. Every soul has some bitterness to swallow. Parents having a child who loses his way come to know a sorrow that defies description. A woman whose husband is cruel or insensitive can have her heart broken every day. Members who do not marry may suffer sorrow and disappointment. Having drunk the bitter cup, however, there comes a time when one must accept the situation as it is and reach upward and outward. President Harold B. Lee said, Do not let self-pity or despair beckon you from the course you know is right. The Savior set the compass, we must be born again in spirit and heart. The people come to Christ, and they feel the tokens of his crucifixion, and they worship him. I quote Elder Holland again, he says, However dim our days may seem, they have been a lot darker for the Savior of the world. As a reminder of those days, Jesus has chosen, even in a resurrected, otherwise perfected body, To retain for the benefit of his disciples the wounds in his hands and in his feet and in his side. Signs, if you will, that painful things happen even to the pure and the perfect. Signs, if you will, that pain in the world is not evidence that God doesn't love you. Signs, if you will, that problems pass and happiness can be ours. Remind others that it is the wounded Christ who is the captain of our souls. He who yet bears the scars of our forgiveness, the lesions of his love and humility, the torn flesh of obedience and sacrifice, these wounds are the principal way we are to recognize him when he comes. He may invite us forward as he has invited others to see and to feel those marks. If not before, then surely at that time we will remember with Isaiah that it was for us that God was despised and rejected a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 16 starts, And when they had all gone forth and had witnessed for themselves, they did cry out with one accord, saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. And Hosanna, according to Daniel Ludlow's study guide of the Book of Mormon, is a transliteration of a Hebrew word of supplication, which means in essence, "Oh, grant salvation. And evidently the people were asking the Savior to teach them the way to salvation. Thus, it is not surprising that he immediately teaches them the basic principles and ordinances of the gospel. In verse 18, he calls Nephi, who comes and kisses his feet. And he gives Nephi and others the authority to baptize the people after he leaves. Now, it might seem strange that he's giving Nephi the power to baptize, the authority to baptize, even though we've seen that Nephi, who was a righteous and pure individual, was baptizing people before. This is what Joseph Fielding Smith explained. He said, when Christ appeared to the Nephites on this continent, he commanded them to be baptized, although they had been baptized previously for the remission of their sins. Then we read that the Savior commanded Nephi and the people to be baptized again because he had organized a new church under the gospel. For the same reason, Joseph Smith and those who had been baptized prior to April 6, 1830, that baptism for the, was for the remission of sins, were again baptized on the day of the organization of the church. They had to be in order to come into the church by the door. Clearly, baptism is a very important ordinance. It's a saving ordinance. It's one of the basic ordinances. And the Savior teaches Nephi and the other disciples exactly how he wants it done so that there is no more contention. And in fact, in verse 29, he warns, For verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil who is the father of contention, and he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. We have to be united. President Irene said, where people have the spirit with them, we may expect harmony. The spirit puts the testimony of truth in our hearts, which unifies those who share that testimony. The spirit of God never generates contention. It never generates the feelings of distinction between peoples, which leads to strife it leads to personal peace and a feeling of union with others. It unifies souls. A unified family, a unified church, and a world at peace depend on unified souls. In verse 32, he says, And this is my doctrine, and it is the doctrine which the Father hath given unto me. And I bear record of the Father, and the Father beareth record of me. And the Holy Ghost beareth record of the Father and me, and I bear record that the Father commandeth all men everywhere to repent and to believe in me. So, he's confirming that this is from the Godhead, from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And Verse 33 says, And whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved, and they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. We go back to the very basics, that, that fourth article of faith. We believe that the first four principles of the gospel are first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just faith, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, repentance. Third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And fourth, the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. And after that, we need to do as it says in verse 37, And again I say unto you, you must repent and become as a little child and be baptized in my name, or you can in no wise receive these things. He's going over the basic doctrine. In fact, my doctrine, he uses the term my doctrine eight times in these verses. And he talks of baptism, and he talks about building upon the rock and not upon the soundy foundation. The rock is revelation. It's It's his commandments, his his doctrine as given to us by the prophets, as given to us in the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, how blessed we are to have the gospel of Jesus Christ, to have prophets and apostles who are alive today, who testify and witness of his divinity and who will help us and guide us in these troubling times and in these last days. How blessed we are to have the Book of Mormon, where we can witness the coming of Christ to the people on the American continent. And he will come again. And if we are faithful, we will be caught up with the saints as well and receive him as he establishes his kingdom of peace on the earth. And that is my prayer and that is my hope in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <music> Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com or text me at 916-412-2136. Thank you and have a blessed week.